Tonight, the opera is not known for being racially inclusive, but that hasn't stopped generations of Black artists from making their mark. A new podcast looks back at the hidden voices that shaped our musical past. Then, behind the scenes at The Moth, the live onstage storytelling platform helping people everywhere tell their stories without a script. As Metro Focus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin, the JPB Foundation. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. The opera is one of the oldest and most elegant forms of entertainment to come out of the Western classical music tradition. It also hasn't been very racially inclusive. Historically, operas have rarely featured Black characters, and when they have, those characters have tended to be based on racist stereotypes, at times performed by white actors in Blackface. A new podcast from WQXR, New York City's only all-classical music station, is exploring the history of Black representation in opera and highlighting the often overlooked contributions of Black artists to classical music. The series titled Every Voice with Terrence McKnight is out now, available to stream everywhere you find your favorite podcast. And joining us now with more on the intersection between Blackness and the opera is Terrence McKnight. Terrence is joining us as part of our Chasing the Dream initiative on poverty, justice, and economic opportunity in America. And he is, of course, the host of Every Voice with Terrence McKnight. Terrence, welcome to Metro Focus. Oh, Jenna, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So first, just uh, for people who don't know you, the five people in New York who don't, um, give us a little background about how you came to become such, uh, not just a fan, but a student of this particular form of classical music. I went to college for music. And in most places in our country, if you go to study music in college, uh, you study Western European music. And so oftentimes you begin with music from the Renaissance and, but there's particular focus on the Baroque period, you know, music mm -hmm. from 1600 forward. And that's how, you know, I had been introduced to opera as a young person, but that's when I um, first started to look at it and think about it seriously during my Morehouse days. Okay. And I think that's also very important to point out that all of this did take place at a historical Black university. But now I, I want to get into, because I think for a lot of people, um, the idea of classical music, which does, you know, largely come out of a European tradition, would seem to not naturally include uh, Black people, Black characters, Black voices, etc. So tell us about what it is that your podcast is illuminating or showing to people that they might have missed or not fully understood. I think the thing is that opera was and is entertainment. And there weren't many options for entertainment back in the 1600s. It was all live. And so folks who were of a certain class, uh, who had money, 
um, power, influence, that was the form of entertainment. Opera was really a showing of, you know, how much money you had and how much power you had. So you had all these musicians working for you and, you know, they wrote music to entertain you. And so a lot of these folks who could afford opera, could afford to have opera performed, were invested in the slave trade. And so I figured, you know, that this entertainment form and the messages coming through this entertainment form had to probably address some of the social and uh, political and um, industrial things that were happening. So, you know, the music supported their philosophy, their ideology about, you know, who they were and who those folks that were being captured were. Can you give us an example of some of those uh, themes that you're talking about, um, how Black characters were portrayed for, again, an audience that was heavily invested in the incredibly lucrative transatlantic slave trade? Well, the first opera we deal with um, chronologically in our in our series is Mozart's um, Magic Flute. But we also, in the second part of the uh, series, we come back to Otello, which was an opera, a story written by Shakespeare in 1590s or so. I mean, Shakespeare worked for Queen Elizabeth and he worked for Elizabeth I. He worked for um, Queen Anne and King James. And as you know, King James was the one who translated the Bible uh, into English. And so Shakespeare wrote for these folks and Mozart wrote um, in the late 17, in the early 1790, 1791, that's the magic flute. And so you have this character in magic flute called Monostatos. And Monostatos is depicted as a Moor. He's a slave. He's a prison guard. And in this opera, Monostatos is guarding a white princess, a beautiful princess. She's described as white and beautiful. And he actually sings that I am black and black is ugly and white is beautiful and I'm smitten, you know, by and captivated by her beauty. And there's a scene where Monostatos um, is doing his job and Pamina is trying to escape and he captures her. And he says to his boss, look, man, I did a great job. I captured her, I kept her from running away. And his boss, Sarastro says, yes, I see you did a great job. I'm gonna reward you. Monostato says, I don't deserve a reward. Your, your grace is sufficient. And Sarastro says, no, I'm going to give you 77 lashes across your feet. And just because he could to show his authority and superiority, Monostatos is beaten. And this is the laugh track for the audience. This Monostatos is the comic relief. He's the buffoon. And um, that becomes part of the what makes it comedic, the mistreatment of Monostatos his desire for family and love, that becomes the, the laugh track, his inability to not be captured and captivated by the sound of music, even regardless of what he's doing, the sound of music just makes him dance and that becomes a laugh track. So a lot of the stereotypes and tropes that we see in American minstrelsy, that's still a part of our culture now, we see being set up in this opera back in 1791, which also just supported the whole sort of political and social caste system for Blackness back then. 
how do you then incorporate or excavate um, positive instances of either Black artists being involved in opera or Black characters being involved in opera when a story like that, a theme like that is um, just so profound? Well, I'm an American and we're Americans and we like underdogs. You know, we like to see the person from the bottom come to the top. So I think in a case like Monostatos, where this guy is cast at the lowest rung of society, if we as audience members and directors and conductors and actors can empathize with what this man wants, you know, his desire for community, his desire for affection, you know, if we can bring that to the fore of the our sort of interpretation of who he is and how he fits into this story, I think there, there can be a shift. You know, if we can see that in Monostatos, maybe we can have more empathy for that man sitting on the, on the bench at a, on 116th Street or sitting on the train with nowhere to go. So I think, you know, in this story, in this podcast I'm talking about, we bring the past into the present and the stage into the streets where we all have to live and work and love together. So if we can build some empathy for this character on stage and not laugh at him, because of his basic human desire to be part of a community. I think maybe that can translate to how we treat one another every day as we pass each other on the streets. Can you explain, you sort of touched on that again, at the end of the day, opera is uh, a form of entertainment and entertainment is of course for everyone. But I think perhaps um, particularly younger black listeners might wonder, well, why are we trying to uh, find or make space or force a space in a place where uh, people who look like me or you have been so routinely disrespected for generations. Why is that of value? You know, we hear a lot of about canceling, you know, history, canceling books, canceling stories, you know, when things are offensive. And I think it works both ways. And so for in a case like this, where an opera has been around for 200 years, this opera is going to continue to be performed. And it's going to continue to, you know, try to other this character of Monostatos. And I think there's a teaching moment here. I think there's an opportunity for us to look at that character and not only to see ourselves in it, but to see other folks in it. And really use it to, as I said, as a teaching moment. And for me, using Mozart to bring out some aspects of Black history and world history and human history is an opportunity. So as you know, there are cancellations of certain stories, um, certain history. Mm-hmm. Not sure folks are going to be so willing to cancel Mozart. So as long as Mozart <laughs> is on the stage, and Verdi is on the stage, I'm going to find, you know, a way to to bring a broader perspective, bring my own personal history into that story and to hopefully inspire someone else. Of course. Now, I also want to go back to the title of the podcast, Lift Every Voice. Um, it's just every voice. Oh, <laughs> it's not a lift. That, okay, that, that's, that's a heavy load. Exactly. To <laughs> Yes. Where my brain immediately goes to. It's every voice. Why did you title the podcast Every Voice? I grew up in church and 
you know, my mother used to tell me, you never know who's going to walk into that door on Sunday morning. And so you have to find a, a, a way through your music of ministering to everyone, regardless of how they look, where they come from, whether you know them or not. You have to find a way to use your musical talent to minister to the folks and try to help somebody. You never know what somebody is going through who walks into this door. So with my opportunity in radio and in this podcast and all the work that I do with music, that's sort of my focus. And um, it's everyone. It's about all of us. Well, we're almost out of time, but I do want to ask you um, just to sort of highlight the kind of work that you do. You did do a show at Lincoln Center. I believe it was titled uh, Langston and Beethoven, Black and Proud. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was? When I read his poetry, I'm always thinking, you know, he and Beethoven had such, so many things in common. You know, these guys really liked common people, you know, the working class folks, wherever Langston went, he would try to associate and understand the working class people and identify with them and write about them. Beethoven was very similar. You know, there were cases where people would try to call Beethoven Ludwig von Beethoven, V-O-N. He said, no, that's aristocratic. My name is V-A-N, Van, you know, and so he liked to listen to folk musicians and that's who he, he associated with. And So I thought if I could bring these two guys together, sort of a forced integration of culture and, and, um, you know, across two different centuries, but they both had this ability to just speak directly from their heart to the hearts of the listeners. And I just brought their, their Beethoven's music and Langston's poetry together in a way that I, you know, was hoping to bring two different audiences together. Again, it goes back to growing up thinking of ways to minister and, you know, to comfort as many people. Mm -hmm. Well, that is the note that we're going to have to leave it on. But Terrence, I want to thank you so much for joining us. The podcast, of course, is called Every Voice with Terrence McKnight. And thank you so much for not just the podcast, but the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jenna. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Everyone has their story. And who, if anyone, will tell it? For nearly 20 years, an organization called The Moth has everyday people share their story, one at a time, to a room of strangers. This simple process has the ability to move the hearts of listeners, as only the gift of good storytelling can. We caught up with a storyteller and her coach at a recent Moth event in New York City. The Moth is a not-for-profit organization. It's dedicated to the art and the craft of true personal story. We say that these personal stories honor both the commonality and the diversity of the human experience. Sometimes they're humorous and sometimes they're heartbreaking. Most of them cover the points in between. Ladies and gentlemen, our storytellers. Only tears could talk on my behalf. My wife and I. I was a soldier. And it was more wonderful. We have a couple different series. One is the Moth Main Stage, which is the bulk of what you hear on the Moth Radio Hour and the podcast. We've got open mic slam nights, which are now in 26 cities. And we have the Moth Community Program, which brings personal storytelling workshops to community groups in the States, but now also in Africa. Tomorrow night, the theme is global stories of women and girls. Our next storyteller, when I asked her, what is your superpower? 
She said the perfect answer. She uh, just looked at me and said, being a woman. <laughs> Please welcome Kusam Thapa. I'm in the high mountains of Nepal in an assignment for the government. I'm Kusum Thapa. I'm an obstetrician and a gynecologist. I'm from Nepal and I'm at the moment based in Washington, D.C. The more you can visualize it and the more that you can put us mm. into the moment with your feeling. Okay. All the storytellers were part of personal storytelling workshops. The purpose is really to find these personal stories that the storytellers choose to tell, they want to tell to help them craft the story, but that the storytellers will also want to tell those stories and other personal stories out in the world. Let's try it. I'll take some notes and we'll, we'll time it. We have Sarah on a regular basis. We can talk to her and she's really training me on storytelling. As a senior obstetrician and gynecologist, I've been helping out in a health camp here. I've just finished a surgery and resting over a cup of tea. Ever since I was a small girl, like I had always thought I would be a doctor one day. I mean, that, that was what my dreams were, particularly because in, in our country, so many women are just dying. So that's why I decided to do obstetrics and gynecology and really be able to serve these women. The phone rings. I quickly grab the phone, as I know it's from home, when suddenly I hear a strange man's voice on the other end. I want you to change the report of a young girl you examined two months back. The person you gave the report against is one of our cadres and he's in police custody. So we want to make sure that the report is changed to not being sexual assault. We belong to the armed rebels and you know what the consequences are if you don't. I was frightened. I did not know what this meant for me. In the workshop, we take a lot of time to find, in many cases, their big decisions that you had to make that changed the course of your life. Flashes of the girl kept coming to my mind. She was only 13 years old, and that was the verdict I had given. Now. At gunpoint, I was made to change my decision. But all along, I knew what, what my, my decision, decision would be. I want to make sure I'm feeling as close to you in your story as possible. So tell me how that felt. Give me all of the feeling. The feeling backs up the plot points. We say and it's not and then and then and then. It's what's at stake for you. Is it Couple necessary other... for me to say that I'm now no longer doing a clinical practice? I mean, the reason is that's my whole life. I mean, I'm, I was an obstetrician, I was doing all that, and now, I mean, this case is... I think it's important. For me, it's so important in my life. Yeah. Yeah, that you had to give it up. Mm -hmm. I just get emotional. <laughs> Let me ask you, why do you empower the health workers? Why do you teach the health workers like you do? Yeah, the reason being like so that they are confident and, um, and they also understand that the importance of, of this. Because it's once we have those conversations to pull, I say pull out all the pieces, then we try to figure out how we can put it back together again so that there's a very definable personal arc that these girls deserve justice. They deserve the right to live with dignity.
I decided I would be their voice. Back down here. At the end, there were lots of people who came to me and just held my hands and really congratulated me, which clearly showed that they really felt the way I did. The expression which they had in their face, like they were living those moments with me. I continue to build the skills of frontline health workers to empower them so that they can stand for these girls, they can stand for the survivors, no matter what the risk. No one will ever turn their back on them again. Thank you. Nothing is more damaging to a country and its people than a civil war. But I'm not talking about the war devastating Syria. This war has garnered far fewer headlines and international attention. Yet this brutal conflict has been dredging on for three catastrophic years. I'm talking about the civil war in Yemen. Over the course of the conflict, over 10,000 Yemenis have died and more than 50,000 injured, leaving 22 million in need of humanitarian assistance, half of which are children. With a growing humanitarian crisis unfolding, the work of humanitarian aid groups like CARE are crucial. Joining me now to talk about the civil war in Yemen and the relief work of CARE is Bushra Adurena, who despite being displaced by the war herself, is overseeing outreach work while still raising her own school-aged son. And she joins me now. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. So first, I just want to get a sense of what is it that we are missing from the headlines when it comes to the uh, war in Yemen? I think what's happening in Yemen is just being forgotten by the international community and it's not being reached what's going on and what's happening because the number of people are in need now is in millions. It's not uh, thousands of uh, hundreds of thousands or something. It's 22.2 millions that are in, in desperate needs for, for humanitarian assistance. We're talking about like death and life for children and women who are dying on a daily basis. And when you talk about this humanitarian crisis, um, are we talking about people who are being starved? Are they exposed to um, a lot of disease? Or what kind of humanitarian crisis exactly are we talking about? It's multiple to a humanitarian crisis that we're talking about because we have people dying every day. We have people starving. We are in the brink of famine. 11 million people are in the brink of famine. And we are talking about uh, homeless people. We are talking about people who have lost their income resources, their, their lives, their houses, their beloved ones. We're talking about people who are dying from, for several reasons, either from airstrikes or from internal conflict or from epidemics like cholera, diphtheria, and different type of diseases. That's what we're talking about. So then how did you get involved with uh, a relief organization when you yourself were a victim of this conflict? I've been working with CARE since 2010 uh, when I joined uh, CARE International. And then since then, I started my career with them. And uh, when the latest uh, uh, events happened in 2015, I was already in the humanitarian uh, work. And I got displaced from the area where we were living, uh, where I was overseeing more than 20 staff at that time. And then we were providing humanitarian assistance to some displaced people. At that time, it was just unbelievable that I was, the day I moved out of my house, leaving everything behind us, even not able to take my, 
my child's toys with me. He was telling me, mommy, can we take my toys with us? I was like, we have less than two hours to, to leave and I had to, to organize everybody's departure at that time because it was really critical. Airstrikes were so heavy and we had to run for our lives. So I told him we can come back for in two weeks or a month maximum, but it didn't, it never happened. We never came back. Everything was just destroyed. And while all of that sounds so devastating, I have to imagine that for a young child and for all of the young children who are living through this crisis, that it's that much more impactful. So do you mind sharing with us what this has been like for your own son? It has been like so much um, difficult for him. It's so hard for him also to, to adopt and to live a normal uh, life like any other children in other parts of the world. Wow. Um, I have to ask, how is the U.S., which is considers itself, we consider ourselves to be a very, you know, sort of generous and altruistic country, but how are we viewed in Yemen right now, considering what's going on? Uh, I think the, there are uh, humanitarian support from from uh, uh, U.S. Uh, uh, organizations that is supporting the humanitarian actors in Yemen, but I think it's not uh, it's not the the only thing that should be done towards the Yemen crisis right now. Whatever support can be provided to Yemen is not enough because the main thing that needs to be like supported is like providing peace to Yemeni people and to end this up because. We're, we're out of 27 million. We were talking about 22.2 million people in need. How much left? Well, for people who are seeing this and feel as though they would want to do something, what is it that the average New Yorker can do to support the people in Yemen? I think they, everybody should advocate for peace for Yemen in the first place and uh, like provide the support, the funding to humanitarian workers in Yemen to do the life savings. But I would, I would talk peace in the first place. Well, what does that peace look like in Yemen? What does a peaceful Yemen Ending like? the conflict, ending, ending the, the death of children, innocent women and children in Yemen. That would, would be the peace that I'm talking about. All right. Well, listen, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the program and uh, bringing this important story of humanitarian crisis to the forefront, because, as I said earlier, it doesn't get nearly the enough attention that it should be it getting. It doesn't. Yeah. And thank you for, so much for, for bringing this uh, uh, into the world so people can know exactly what's going on. All right. Thank you for joining us, Bushra. Thanks a lot. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app. Mm -hmm.